0: Hi, I'm here at the AANS Exhibit Hall with Taylor Moss at the Brain Lab Station looking at some of the new exciting tech they have coming out for operative planning and even intraoperative use. Uh, Taylor, can you tell us a bit about what we're looking at here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this solution is our um, mixed reality headset for um, preoperative planning for consultation with your patients. It's great for a residency program for a for a teaching institution. So um, it's powered by our um, strong uh, planning software and the algorithms on our planning computers and our, our curb navigation system, our uh, pre-op buzz navigation system. Um, so. The, uh, the 3D models that you create um, preoperatively or intraoperatively are, are then projected into the headsets. So you can see all of your plans, your preoperative screws for, um, for cranial indications. You can see your fiber tracking, your 3D, uh, 3D tumor reconstruction. So um, before the case, you can take a look at all of this uh, to review um, prior to the surgery. And then coming soon, um, we'll be able to uh, bring this into the operating room itself.
0: Yeah, so I, I will say I just took a headset off myself and I was looking at a 3D model of a spine floating in midair with these pre planned screws. And they had planned some that were perfect, some that were poor, so you could kind of adjust your planning. And I, you know, you mentioned uh, talking to patients in clinic before surgery. That's the, the first place my mind went where you could give them this headset and show them here's your spine, here's what's wrong with it, here's what I want to do to fix it, here's how it's going to look afterwards. And then the idea of, Uh, taking that and bring it into the OR where you can look down at your operative field and see exactly what you had planned, I, I can't imagine that wouldn't be very beneficial and helpful for executing that plan.
1: Yeah, and uh, just to elaborate on that a little bit, we have a surgeon that's actually using this in his clinic right now, um, and he feels it shaves about thirty minutes off of that consult- patient consultation mm-hmm. time because they can really grasp and understand what they're doing. So those complex spine cases, he can kind of fly them through the procedure, um, and it and it kind of uh, you know really is a true visual representation of what's going to be happening there in the OR, makes them a lot more comfortable with the case, and and, and helps them to really be part of that planning process.
0: Yeah, I mean it it takes years of staring at 2D slices in sequence to be able to take that and imagine the three-dimensional structure you're talking about, so I know that when I talk to patients, like, like you said, it takes 30 minutes, it takes an hour for them to get a glimmer of what we're talking about, and so I just had a headset on and I physically walked through in an axial plane, a spine, looking at each segment, looking at each plane's screw trajectory. So, you know, that takes someone right to the end of years and years of staring at a screen where they can just see the thing that we all imagine in their head. So that's incredible. Um, Well, Taylor, thanks uh, for your time describing this new exciting technology. Yep, Thank you so much. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast.
2: Welcome back to the Nursery Podcast. I'm without John Paul because he's now en route to Philadelphia for the uh, annual AAAS meeting, and it's it's turned out to be a really exciting time here. We have. Uh thousands and thousands of docs and, uh, and other folks here in town, and one of the great things about coming to these meetings is you run into old friends and colleagues, and it gives us a great opportunity to record just like how we started this podcast at CNS in 2019. So I'm absolutely delighted to have with me today uh, Kate Drummond, Professor Kate Drummond. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet Kate uh, when uh, I was traveling to Australia my co-fellow from a um, fellowship in Miami was Matthew McDonald, who's in Adelaide. And so I got the opportunity to go to Australia many times. And I met uh, Professor Andrew Kay, who then introduced me to, to Professor Kate Drummond. And she's now heads up the shop in Melbourne, Australia. So welcome to the podcast, Kate.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, so, so wonderful and serendipitous to, to meet you here in Philadelphia. So maybe, maybe give us a little bit of your background. Like, did you grow up in Australia? How your education came about? How you got interested in neurosurgery?
3: Uh, well, uh, I yeah, grew up in Australia. I grew up in Sydney uh, from a completely non-medical family. First person in my family to go to university. Uh, I, I really didn't think about doing medicine until about six months before the end of school uh, and, you know, lucked out by studying hard to get into medicine. Only two people from my school even went to university. Uh, so I got into medicine first sort of uh, it's an undergraduate program in Australia, or it was at that time. So the first through two and a half years were, uh, you know, anatomy, physiology, basic science, which I hated, and struggled through <laughs> the whole time. I can't
2: believe that. Uh,
3: no, I hated it, and and then I then I, I got to start seeing patients, and I was like, okay, this is this yeah. is like absolutely it. I wanted to do obstetrics. Oh wow! Because uh, I didn't actually want to look after sick people. I thought yeah. <laughs> delivering babies would be really nice. Uh, and then I delivered a baby and I thought I'm never going to do that again in my entire <laughs> life, but I really liked the gynae surgery. And so from there, I, I thought general surgery. And then as an intern, I had to do a rotation in neurosurgery as uh, sort of part of my, my, my uh, formal rotations. And that was it. I, I saw my first patient with a brain tumor and I thought, this is what I want to do and uh, we, we have a slightly different training system you rotate through a bunch of different surgical specialties before you land in neurosurgery um, and uh, you know it was uh, uh, I had a really great training experience I had a bit of trouble getting onto the training program you have to do this awful awful exa- entry exam mm-hmm. which doesn't exist anymore I'd like to say if anyone's worried about this exam it doesn't exist anymore Where the College of Surgeons got you to do all these multiple choice questions um, and they took away marks for wrong answers. So you could actually get less than zero in the score. Oh, my
2: goodness.
3: And and when you failed, they gave you this very helpful letter that told you how likely you were to pass in the future. And the first time I sat, they told me I had a 1.5% chance of ever (laughs) passing. But anyway, I got through that and then it was pretty much sort of smooth sailing um, did a, a fellowship at the Brigham and uh, with Peter Black. Yeah, with Peter Black, okay. and uh, and then you know came back to Australia to Royal Melbourne Hospital. and sort of worked through the ranks there.
2: No, it's interesting. You know, we just had the board seasons uh, this past week. All of our uh, residents got their board scores back, and so this will resonate well with them. But you know, I want to point something out for our audience because not everybody listening is in America's. Uh, not everybody knows our American system, and America has a very unique system of healthcare and university practice. You know, I'm a tenured professor at University of Miami, but I'm one of five or six tenured professors in our department. But I, I wanna say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in Australia you carry, even though Australia as a country is very egalitarian, it's on the European tradition. And so generally speaking, and I don't wanna offend anybody by saying this, but in the whole of Australia, at least that I saw it, when Andrew Kay was in charge, he was the professor and every university has only one professor, right, who runs everything and then he was really the professor for the whole country. Is that uh, correct? No, so- I think
3: it I think it's changed a bit. Okay. You know, um uh you know there's a professor of all of surgery which is what mm-hmm. Andrew was okay um I'm the professor chair of the neurosurgery department right. now Andrew filled both those positions. oh but what I'm
2: saying is that you don't have 17 professors of neurosurgery at Melbourne uh
3: no no right. no no we have a we have a, f- a few people who have university appointments and right. then some of them have what we call honorary appointments so there's no financial uh
2: right uh, but, implication.
3: I, but yeah I yeah. guess
2: what I'm indicating to the audience is like so, when people call you profess call me professor Sometimes it's jokingly and it's almost in derision. It's like, oh, professor. And then, you know, nutty professor. But in in Australia and in Europe, actually, when you're, or Japan, if you're a professor, um, that title carries incredible gravitas beyond just the academic lineage and having acquired tenure. But you're now the professor in Melbourne, which, and I, I know you're very humble, but that essentially speaks to a sense of authority in the Royal College and the university level that's far beyond what I have, for example. I I, want to see that there's a proof of it, right? I think
3: that's true. You know, it's and it's also a smaller population, smaller, you know, much smaller. uh, You know, 150 neurosurgeons in the whole country. So you know, it it is it is a lot different, and it's quite a big process with regards to proving international profile, um, uh, you know, engagement, leadership, teaching, research. Uh, all of those things to to get the the university yeah. to award it,
2: and nothing against your colleagues in, in Sydney, which is the other major city in Australia, but the, the program in Melbourne has traditionally been more academic, yeah, right? Correct. Okay, yeah. So so to me, this is very interesting because you're from a nation that is about the size of America, the population is uh, less than a tenth, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and yet it's a first world nation. Yeah, and it sits on the rim of uh, a couple billion people, yeah. right? China, yeah. India, yeah. Yeah. Indonesia, which yeah. is enormous, and you train a lot. These people, and so I want to ask you about this because I know you've had a passion for education. Um, what is it like training Australia? Because it is different, uh, even how you train your residents is yeah, different, right? Completely
3: different. So, it's a bi national selection process. So, in New Zealand and Australia okay. um, uh, select from uh, across the two countries. Um, there's a somewhere between eight and 12 people appointed each year, mm-hmm. uh, and because many of the centres sort of historically were much smaller, um, people have to move around. So it's not a program based. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I really noticed this when I when I worked in Harvard. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to Harvard and, and I did an operation one way, and they'd look at me and they would go, "But you can't do that." And mm-hmm. I'm like, "But I've always done that." And it, you know, they were sort of did things, the residents did things the Harvard way, and that right. was fine. And, it was, and the you know, Brigham way, not it, even the yeah, Mass General yeah, that's way, right? right? And yeah. it was a good way. Yeah. In, in, in Australia, the one big advantage of that system is that you, you're exposed to, you know, multiple different programs across the time, and I think you come out more versatile. But the, the downside of that is that, you know, what I saw in the US was that if someone was underperforming in a program, they were out because no one mm-hmm. wanted to stay with them for six years. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Australia, if you've only got someone for a year and they're a little, a, bit, a little bit borderline, then moving them on is much easier than confronting that sort of borderline performance. So so I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both uh, you know both ways of training.
2: Yeah, I mean, shout out to to the to the product because Yinda Lee, who who spent a yeah. year with us in Miami, I will say this, and and we've ha- I've probably trained about forty plus fellows in spine. He is uh, clearly, technically, at least, um, the most proficient fellow we have ever had. And the, and part, part of it was the versatility. Yeah. He could put in, he could be put in any room. He could do the the surgery not only safely but efficiently. Probably comes from going to different cities in Australia, yeah, yeah. right, in training. Yeah, so. You know, it's an interesting place, right? I mean, I I feel like uh, in some ways and this is going to be is it's going to sound a little oversimplified, but I, I thought about moving to Australia because I felt like it was kind of like America without the problems of America and I'm I'm not saying that you guys don't have problems, but you know, there it is a different history. Yeah. Right? And yet you also have a First World nation status and the doctors do very well and they don't often get sued and there's a standard of practice mm-hmm. and it there it, in many ways I feel it's, very idyllic, but in other ways, as we all know, it's it's not truly idyllic. In other words, um, you being the I'm gonna to I'm just gonna say this I don't wanna offend anybody in 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 the Pacific Rim, but like you're like the professor of Australia now, now that Prof. K has stepped out. I,
3: I don't think my co- colleagues would like to hear yeah, like they won't, the Professor but I'll say of it. Australia. <laughs> let me let me say it. let me
2: say it because I, I mean it. What I mean it is not it's not it's not like me pandering to you. I'm saying you hold a a fairly high title within the realm of neurosurgery in that part of the world, right? And you're a woman, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, that is true, yes. Right,
2: and when I was in Australia, I did not see a lot of women practicing neurosurgery, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's lower rates than America, but it's maybe similar. No, or... it's
3: about the same, about, yeah. uh, about you know, 40, depending on how you count it, but about 14%.
2: Right, so that's probably like it's, it's a handful of individuals. Yeah. It's probably less than 20 people in yeah. the whole country, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So, so you, you had indicated to me that there's actual, uh, there are actionable items that you've put in place to help to, to change that, right? You're changing that.
3: Well, uh, we hope to. I mean, I think we've all got to admit that the things like mentoring, mm. role models, women in surgery groups, you know, these things have been around for a decade, two decades, I, yeah. I, I was the trainee representative on the women in surgery group for the College of Surgeons in 1994.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. That's for the Royal College for the of Royal College,
3: That's for surgery in general. Yeah. Um, you know, that pipeline has been a trickle, mm. uh, and it's been really leaky because women are more likely to leave surgical training. Sure. Um, so I think we have to admit that, that, that is failing and, you know, some estimates have been that it's going to be 150 or 250 years before we reach gender equity in neurosurgery. You're if,
2: talking about just balances in numbers. Yeah,
3: balances yeah, okay. in numbers. Um, <clears throat> so we need to do something different. And I think it, it you know, I, I don't like everyone goes, oh, you want quotas. No, I do not want quotas. Mm-hmm. But what I want is for us to define the standard to train as a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And then we need to preference women who meet that standard so that we can so say you so say we um, finally have twenty candidates in Australia who all have passed all of the hurdles mm-hmm. um, to say that they have uh, you know could could train as a neurosurgeon, but we've only got eight places. I think we should preference women into those eight places until we achieve some gender parity.
2: So one of the things about this podcast is we focus a lot on the the reality of neurosurgery and the culture of what we do, which is that, you know, we always use the example like it's like being a Navy SEAL, and there's all these hurdles to get through and we're the apex predator, and it's a very... The persona, whether one likes it or not, some elements of it are probably critical to being a great surgeon Mm -hmm. and some of them are not, right? But let's just say that the neurosurgical personalities are, and we've talked about that on this podcast, are already relatively unique, right?
3: Yeah, but I would would argue that that neurosurgical personality has been developed by By men. men. Yes, right. And just because it works... It doesn't mean it's the only way.
2: Right. So tell me about that. So, so how, and again, you're looking into the future now, right? Yeah. And you represent N of 1 as yourself, yeah. plus your trainees. But when you look at that, do you see having, let's say, have, let's say we had 30% neurosurgeons women. How would you see the persona of the neurosurgeon perhaps changing?
3: Well, I'd like to point out that, of course, you'll find plenty of alpha women,
2: yeah, and and in, by the way, we're using surgery. broad brushes here, broad right? Brushes. Women are not one group of people; men um, are not one group of people, right? We got you
3: that, know. Yeah. Uh, well, well, one o- really obvious thing would yeah. be you know um, wanting to have a family friendly proce- pr- profession is not just the purview of women, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think it would very much benefit men if the conversation changed because of the percentage of women mm-hmm. in the in the uh, in the profession. Um, but I think. You know, there's lots of uh, lots of evidence from business, from uh, and 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 other um, other professions that the more diverse your workforce is, the better your workforce functions. And we've got a lot of problems in neurosurgery with regards to bullying and harassment Mm -hmm. and our behavior. And, you know, most lawsuits are around behavior and everything else. So if we can provide a, uh, you know, a profession that has all of the diversity of the community and benefits from all of those aspects of diversity, our patients will benefit. And I think that's really important.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that they're having those multiple... Uh, perspectives and styles to survive any kind of I I always worry about the existential crises to our field right that we're small so it's very easy for some you know a glioma vaccine right suddenly there's no more
3: oh that'd be fine by me right it'd be be a wonderful thing for humans
2: but then it's like well you know what happens right but from the perspective of 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 what happens to the specialty having the ability to say move on to other disease that need to be tackled you know having that kind of diversity i think is, is truly a wonderful thing to have
3: but it also makes no sense to be excluding the top of 50 percent of the population mm. you know we're, we're missing out on a lot of extraordinary people there and it's happening right in medical school when when they say to some to someone "Oh, I'm quite interested in neurosurgery and they go oh don't you want to have a family Oh yeah. Or yeah. you know, look, you know, look. I'm, you know, I've got this fantastic PhD now, and I'm looking to get into getting to neurosurgery training. Oh, it's very difficult for women. Um, you know, we'll be here for you, but it's oh, it's a tough road. Yeah. Those yeah. sort of microaggressions. We're missing. we're missing. We're yeah. missing out on on yeah. you know the the top part of fifty percent of the population, and that's not smart for our profession because it also means that we're filling it with the the below that top part mm. of the other half of the population. So we're missing out.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very important point because the style that we have, the, the methods of training, and also sort of the demands of the emergency elements plus the, the small number of people, right? You only train so many people. Mm-hmm. They've got to cover so much call. It, it does become uh, an issue. So what do you tell the young people who come to you and say, listen, you know... I have these plans. You know, the thing that, that kind of I face is that we see a lot of wide-eyed young mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Everybody wants to be a neurosurgeon. Yeah, yeah. Let's be honest. Like, I always say this, like, if you could just give people the title, it's like saying, would you like to be a senator or astronaut? But you don't have to go to space or serve. You're like, yeah, sure, just give me the title. I'll put the patch on my mm-hmm. arm. Mm-hmm. I'm a neurosurgeon. Okay, mm-hmm. guess what? But, there, but then there's the reality of, of the training, right? You have to do so many cases. You have to see so much pathology. How, does, how do you balance that when you do talk to these people?
3: Oh, I'm very honest. The first thing I say is, well, what makes you better than everyone else?
2: You mean meaning because they're asking you the question? They're saying yeah. to me, you know, I'm, really, I'm, I'm
3: really interested in yeah. neurosurgery. Well, firstly, because they're so competitive. Yeah. So, right. you know, neurosurgery training, you know, oh, I'm really interested in it. And then, you know, they're, they're sort of, I mean, you know, bright-eyed, wide-eyed kids. Yeah, exactly. So, well, what makes you better than everyone else? Um, you know, because you're going to have to be to get in. Yeah, and then I say, and what's plan B, plan C and plan D Right. so that they're, you know, realistic. Um, but then I'm really encouraging. I'm saying, but, you know, you, you, you've, you've got to be better than everyone else. So you can spend a lot of time talking about work-life balance and work-life balance is super important, but, you know, you've got to find the, the, the balance between having some home life and getting enough cases, being there, being visible, being the person that everyone knows wants to do neurosurgery. So, you know, I I talk about the tension, I talk about, you know, how difficult it will be, but I don't talk about it in gender terms. Mm -hmm. I never say a different thing Mm -hmm. to a woman and a man. In fact, I'll I'll often ask both, you you know, are you married? Do you want a family? I I know that's very non-PC, but I'll say that to to both, to both,
2: yeah, um,
3: or to all genders, and and then know what they want out of life.
2: Yeah, we've done a whole mini series on respiratory families and stuff because yeah. it is so interesting. But I, I think you're you're saying exactly the right thing. I guess the question I would have then is. I'm like you. I did not come into medicine thinking I was going to be a neurosurgeon. I wanted to be a dermatologist, right? <laughs> so what a big change, right? But I know that I read these essays and everybody says they've wanted to be a neurosurgeon since they were five years old. And when I see that, it makes me wonder, why, why would you say that? Are you saying that you wanted the power of a neurosurgeon? Or is it just something you saw in a Hollywood movie? Like it's Dr. Strange. Like it, there's, there's the persona that we project and the persona that's projected on us. And there's a confluence there, right? And that, in some ways, is the attractant, but it's also kind of the barrier, in, in my mind. Right? Oh yeah, because
3: they're, they're, they're completely unrealistic about what yeah. it involves. I, I think the Australian system, where people do two to four years before they start neurosurgical training, in, uh-huh. in sort of, you know, general, medicine. general, yeah. well, more general surgery, not, not general okay. surgery, Surgical rotations. They might do a bit of oh, critical care. They'll yeah. do a bit of neurosurgery. So you're still doing a little bit of everything. Do a little yeah. bit of something. Yeah. Um, much of that might be spent doing neurosurgery but at, and what we call unaccredited training.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That's a great time for a graceful ex- exit. You know, there's a lot of people who yeah. go, hey, you know what? This is really not for me. And my plan B, which was neuroradiology or whatever, that's where I'm going to go. Uh-huh. Um, or you know, I've had people exit into uh, intensive care, ED, uh, or out of medicine altogether. Um, you know, I think I think that's a, a really good thing to give these people a graceful sort of exit.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. It is more European, right? You you do the back end filter in America. We have this long front filter of the college, mm-hmm. and then you go to medical school, and then you know you try to get everything together, and then but once you're committed to neurosurgery, you're kind of locked in. If you leave are a pariah, right? Yeah. It's like it's like yeah. you got fired, or what? What happened yeah. to you? And that's right? that's
3: kind of sad, yeah, because. Um you know, you see a lot of unhappy people who kept on a track just because it was too hard to right. leave.
2: But on the on the flip side, I think the idea behind it in America was that there's general surgery was so pyramidal. Yeah. In other words, you eliminate people as you go up. And so if you start an American training program ninety eight percent of the time you're gonna finish at mm-hmm. least. Whereas you if you're in France, like you could be a resident for God knows how many years or Japan, right? Yeah. It's it's really it's different. It's yeah. definitely No,
3: different. we yeah. we we can't be a resident forever. You've you've got a you've got a limitation. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. Well, Well, I I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're very busy at this meeting in Philadelphia to come share with uh, us your thoughts. We have many listeners in the Asia-Pacific countries and Australia and Singapore, like beacons of light in that area of the world. And, um, you know, we have to have you back on. I I, I probably will be seeing you in Jerusalem, I think, right? Yeah,
3: we'll definitely. I'll see you in Jerusalem. Absolutely.
2: Regards to Professor Kay. And um, thank you again for coming on the podcast today.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: disclaimer time the opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself Dr. Wang and our guests they do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization this show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification it's just a show everybody